right, here we go with Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Morning, Keith. Good morning. Let's start with the B.C. by-elections tomorrow. Tomorrow. Right, okay, so we we just had these federal by-elections. These are provincial by-elections. Well, you talk about flying under the radar. Probably people have not been following us. Two by-elections. Langford, Juan de Fuca. That's John Horgan's old riding. Yeah. Right, so there's a by-election there. And And then Vancouver, Mount Pleasant. Where Cabinet Minister Melanie Mark, that was her, right? She's she is retired. Both very strong NDP. These are both solid NDP. So Vancouver Mount Pleasant has been NDP ever since it was created. Mike Harcourt was the first MLA there. Uh, one of only two seats to survive the wipeout in 2001. The other one was Vancouver Hastings. So be very, um, very uh, unusual for the NDP to lose this seat. Yeah. They're running Joan Phillip, uh, very veteran who ran federally for the NDP. Uh, indigenous activist, uh, very strong candidate. Uh, Ravi Sharma, uh, Sharma is the candidate in the NDP in Langford Wanda Fuca School, trustee, also works in the BC government. Uh, again, Horgan won that with 68% of the vote. Wow. By <laughs> almost 14,000 votes in 2020. Now, yeah. that's John Horgan. Um, but he held that seat for a number of years. Uh, Rick Casper held that. Remember Rick Casper mm-hmm. before that? Mm-hmm. Um, Melanie Mark won with 67%. Uh, so these are very strong eyes. What's going to be interesting, I think, more interesting, unless there's a huge upset, then it, that's that's the story. Today. So the Green Party finished second in both seats last time. Yeah. So do they finish second this time? This is the first uh, attempt by the BC United, first try for the BC United name to be on a ballot. This right. is the first time. So we'll see. Not what, the BC Liberals the anymore. BC, Liberal. BC United. The, so this, BC the, United. The, this is the first test drive for that, I guess. Yeah, in, in two seats where historically the BC Liberals never did very well, right. anyway. So yeah. what we'll see. And the other one is the BC Conservatives mm. are running candidates. So this in is, both in both ridings. I think I know in Vancouver Mount Pleasant they are. Okay. I'm not sure about Langford. Uh, I should know that. But um, it'll be interesting to see what, if any, impact they have. Again, it, by-elections are unique beasts. They're not general elections. Um, in BC, the historical trend is governments usually lose by elections, but these are two very safe NDP seats at a time when the NDP is leading um, all the parties in the poll. So it'd be uh, upset of historic proportion for the NDP to lose either one. But I'm more interested in who finishes second and third, yeah, and by what margins, because right. that might give a little bit of a glimpse into what we could expect come the next uh, provincial general election. BC Conservative Party is really intriguing because they have a new leader, of course, a former Liberal Liberal MLA who went over to John Rustad. John Rustad is now the leader of the BC. Conservative Party actually has a seat in the legislature. So I know there's concern in BC United Party ranks about that. Yeah. Could could that Conservative Party, even if it just gains a little bit of traction and steam, do they peel off some of their support? Well, again, I don't think it's going to have an impact on these by-elections because they're such strong NDP seats. But you yeah. start putting Conservative, can, as we saw in the 2020 election, uh, Conservatives ran a candidate in Vernon Monashi. Won enough votes, take enough votes away from the BC Liberals. The NDP won a seat that never had won before. Okay. Same in uh, Langford, uh, same in Langley and Chilliwack. Okay, we'll see what happens there. Let's talk about David Eby, Premier David Eby, commenting again yesterday um, about the the call for new power mm-hmm. supply, uh, new power projects in, in British Columbia. Let's have a listen to him here. The need for clean energy, including wind and solar power in our province, has accelerated. BC Hydro's filing indicates we require about 3,000 gigawatt hours per year of renewable energy, starting as early as 2028. Okay, so we need a lot of energy. New on top projects. of Site C. On top, yeah, it's on top of the Site C. Yeah. yeah, so this is a huge power call. First power call by BC Hydro goes out next year in 15 years. 
And it's ironic, to say the least. The NDP used to oppose these independent power projects in, while in opposition. Now they're embracing them because we need more power, and Hydro's not going to build a bunch of new dams. So a bunch of wind farms and solar energy um, farms uh, have to be created over the next few years. Electricity use is expected to increase by 15%, or electricity demand is 15%, which is huge. Mm. When you look at how much electricity we consume already uh, as we wean ourselves off of fossil fuel, and you and I have talked about this before, can we meet this rather ambitious target of 90% of all new vehicles uh, in the next 10 years or so have to be electric vehicles? And they need to be powered. We had a story on last night, Richard Zussman had a piece about how the the rebate program for the charging stations is uh, run out of of money, just as um, the the, um, electric vehicle uh, bicycles uh, also. So the demand is there. 18% 18% of new vehicles right now are electric vehicles. Um, but that's going to have to jump to 90 over a relatively short period of time. And we're talking hundreds of thousands of cars. Yeah. Now, there's a counter-argument to this. It's interesting. Even environmentalists will make this uh, argument. Do we really need more cars, whether they're, environment, whether they're electric or not? Electric or not, right. There's still a fossil fuel footprint associated with electric vehicles of because of the manufacturing and mining that's required before they're actually built. Okay. I'm really interested in your thoughts on the Titanic submarine and the tragic ending here. So officials yesterday saying that the, the submersible imploded mm-hmm. underwater, all five people aboard killed. And I've received emails from listeners saying, how come you are so focused on this story? Why don't you talk about the migrant ships mm-hmm. and the people drowning on the migrant ships? And you compare that to the, this, the Titanic sub saturation media coverage around the world international rescue effort to rescue these these billionaires have a listen to barack obama former u.s president uh talking about this this week let's listen there's there's a a potential tragedy unfolding with a submarine that is getting you know minute to minute coverage all around the world and it's understandable because obviously we all want and pray that those folks are rescued But the fact that that's gotten so much more attention than 700 people who sank is that's a that's an untenable situation. Okay, so he's comparing, he's talking there about the a fishing boat that was loaded with 700 migrants, people trying to get from Libya to Italy, that capsized in the Mediterranean, seven, 78 confirmed dead, hundreds more missing. Now, what do you think of that comparison? Well, it's an interesting comparison. I, I do think, you heard the people clap there. I yeah. think everyone in that audience was following the submersible story. This is the yeah. thing that people won't admit. There is there is a mystery. There's It's also the Titanic, which yeah. I've always maintained. There's a reason why there's four or five movies about the Titanic, and all of them have done well at the box office. There's yeah. an immense interest in the Titanic. It's the rich versus poor argument. These are billionaires, four billionaires and their son, aboard this, this vessel, which kind of mirrors the Titanic, which was, if you look at the movies of the Titanic, it's a couple storylines. One was the rich people, the Jacob Astor passengers versus the steerage passengers. Yeah. Um, so it's it's not, I think, surprising the media. There would be significant media interest attached to this because I, ref- I think it reflects public interest. I'm s- sad to say that the, the migrant ship sinking is not a unique situation. We've seen 
terrible uh, tragedies in amongst desperate refugee populations over you know years and years i mean it's not an unusual now the number here is a, is a big number but um we see tragedies unfold this the the train uh, accident in india yeah. got some media coverage it didn't get huge amount of media coverage even though hundreds were killed uh it's just it reflects i think north american audiences interest is that they are interested in things that are closer to home. I would also, you know, defending the media coverage of the Titanic story, you know, this is a story that was intriguing on many different levels. Primarily among them, we talked about this on the show yesterday, was there were the warnings that this company had received for years from people inside the company and outside the company that the sub was unsafe mm-hmm. and that the the owner of the company's plowed ahead anyway, it was uncertified sub. And this is something, okay, listen to this. This is really interesting. Filmmaker James, James Cameron, of course, you know, creator of the Titanic movie here. Here he is. Listen to him comparing this event and the sinking of the Titanic itse- itself in 1912. Have a listen to this. I'm struck by the similarity of the Titanic disaster itself, where the captain was repeatedly warned about ice ahead of his ship, and yet he steamed at full speed into an ice field on a moonless night and many people died as a result and for a very similar tragedy where warnings went unheeded to take place at the same exact site yeah i thought that was a, an intriguing comparison that he made there well again it, because it's the titanic i think there's a disproportionate yeah. amount of interest the titanic has this grip on the public imagination um, through generations and that's why the titanic movies are so popular uh, if this was a, a submersible sailing for some vessel that no one had ever heard about, I don't think we would have seen the same match, uh, saturation yeah. coverage. All right, Keith Baldry is my guest. It's Baldry's Beat. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Dave and Burnaby. Hi, Dave. Go ahead. Hi. Um, just a couple of thoughts. Uh, quickly, uh, the U.S. Navy knew within 10 minutes that that sub had imploded, and... Uh, there is um, uh, so secondly and they didn't tell anybody and there's rumors that they didn't tell anybody because Joe Biden wanted to use it as a uh, cover-up of his scandals which are going on oh, right now oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah yeah that's a that's yeah. a bit of a ba- that's a bit of a bank shot yeah. <laughs> nice conspiracy theory try but um, to your earlier point that they knew earlier than they let on that this was no longer a rescue operation. It was a recovery operation. That has been reported. Well, did they know for sure? Did they know for sure that the sub had imploded? Again, there's reports that they knew early on that this thing was, was not, not a rescue. But were they 100% sure? I haven't seen anyone say it's 100%. And yeah. as, for, as for this being a Joe Biden cover, I mean, where do you yeah, that's a little. That's from? too much of a bank shot for uh, me, for sure. But, you know... Uh, James Cameron said the same thing. He said, yeah. as soon as as soon as you the communication went silent instantly and there were a number of sort of redundant communication systems apparently on board and they all were dead at the same time. Yeah, he, he says said he that's ha- when he knew that it impl- the sub and he says he has some sources and he figured Cameron's got a little bit of expertise in this area. Oh, yes. Given his contacts and his... Yeah. his uh, well, he's been down 33 times yeah, to the exactly. Titanic himself. So I think he's probably got some good intel. Yeah. Gary in Pitt Meadows. Hi, Gary. Hey, how you going, Mike? Good. Um, Go ahead. I just, I just, I've just got one question. Um, I thought the U.S. Navy were working on um, a, a suit, a pressurized suit. They, they called a newt suit. And what it is is it's like you put this suit on, and uh, you, you look like the Michelin Man because it's all it's all like balls put together with the man inside. 
I don't know if how far they were going with it, but I think they had a pretty good um, technique on it now. But I'm just saying, wondering why it didn't it wasn't even mentioned in the insert. Okay, I'm not sure. I'm not but... familiar with that. What is coming out is there's a lot of stuff the U.S. Navy has and deployed in this that we were unaware they even had. You know, so... like underwater listening capability. Yeah, this stuff. So yeah. a lot of military secrets are sort of being revealed here. Here's another interesting. I think kind of ironic part of this, and this was this was mentioned on the show yesterday. We had a great guest on this yesterday. Pointed out that in the original Titanic disaster in 1912, that led to a whole bunch of safety reforms, yep. right? So there were requirements Lifeboat for regulations. lifeboats, life jackets, mandatory communication systems, mm-hmm. mandatory signaling systems like flares on every boat. And there's an international protocol. The irony here is this sub did not fall under any of that. They were not subject to any of those safety rules because, it, as we mentioned earlier, it operates in international waters. Well, so it's, it's kind of this gray area. But it's also used by a tiny, tiny, tiny group of people. Yeah. You know, ocean liners and, and cruise ships carry millions of passengers. These yeah. submersible, these visits are basically billionaires. Yeah. A very small number of billionaires use these... these uh, these types of vehicles, which is why another reason why I think um, there's probably a bit of lax safety uh, oh, yeah. requirements here because it's not a mass use. For sure. Mike in Vernon. Hi, Mike. Go ahead. Hey, morning, guys. Happy Friday. Um, yeah. Regarding uh, this call for energy from Hydro, uh, yeah. this was so obvious. So I, I got a few quick points and I'll make them. First of all, the amount of money that cryptocurrency mining is, is taking, the amount of energy it's taking is, is staggering. And I know hydro is now starting to throttle it back. That's one place where we can stay the heck with that and just pick up what's being taken there. Was, is, um, there a lot of, is there a lot of cryptocurrency mining happening in BC? Yeah, there is. I just, I read is a story there? about the fact that okay. they're actually, I read a story about the fact that they're actually, hydro is now going to start limiting how much they're going to allow because of the amount of energy it's taking because it's considered a green place to do it because of our hydroelectricity. Um, the other thing is, is the logistics of building um, out the infrastructure and the, and the stuff. I mean, I know they, the idea of getting to, to where we want to get to in, this, in the allotted time is great, but it's just logistically impossible simply mm-hmm. because of the amount of raw materials and everything else needed, we have to quadruple. I think, Mike, you actually had a guest on who was talking about that whole side of the fact. It's just impossible to, to uptick everything as, as quickly. Well, yes, because mm-hmm. in order to build all these electric vehicles, and especially the batteries that power the, the electric engines, you will have to drastically increase mining of all these rare mm-hmm. earth minerals and other... Norway is talking about mining the seabed. Mm. which normally would have environmental activists going crazy, yeah. the notion of mining the seabed, but that's where some of these minerals exist. So, yeah, the, the dirty secret of electric vehicle is the mining and manufacturing process, where the mines you know, are in many third-world countries, deplorable working conditions, employing children as laborers. Uh, China, Chinese state companies have bought up a lot of this, these properties. China controls the supply chain yeah. for, for this, a lot of these minerals. Uh, BC's or Canada's get into the game a little late with some of these um, mines being established. It takes about ten years to get a mine up and running in, in Canada. And as a caller's point about building infrastructure, you just don't snap your fingers and uh, build a mine or build a wind farm or a solar uh, panel production facility. There's environmental processes. There's First Nations claims. All sorts of complicating factors. Keith, have a great weekend. Have a great weekend.